please remain standing and grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jude. If you get to Revelation, you've went one page too far. Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Jude 1, 5 through 16. This is God's holy word, our rule of faith and life. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism. To gain advantage. The Lord is my portion. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust and know that it is your word. Father, that Christ claimed repeatedly to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God and the Son of Man, to be God himself, claiming that he was the I Am. Father, he proved those claims unquestionably by his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. Father, we thank you that we can then trust that his words are your words. Father, we thank you that Christ sent his apostles to declare in wisdom and in truth the things of you, the things needed for life and godliness. 
But Father, we thank you for the prophets and for the apostles. Father, we thank you that in these 66 books written by several hands over thousands of years on multiple continents, we thank you that every last word of it is breathed out by God and is trustworthy and is useful and is infallible. Father, we pray now as we hear your word preached that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, so that we may glorify you in obedience to it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I will be turning 29 years old in August of this year. Carly will be 30. And we were talking about the other day, uh, reflecting. Carly's been going through doing these little books for Liam and Sammy and Nora recently. Uh, maybe some of you did the same for your children, little first stages books where you put pictures in and write down you know, their first word, what their interests were, what life things were happening at this time or that. And as we were reflecting on some of those and thinking back to uh, you know, what would have been probably in mine and Carly's books, a, a realization hit me um, as we were thinking about life events. It was kind of a bummer to realize how many of what we wrote down as being big events going on in the world revolved around, around war. Uh, for, for each of our children, and as I thought back to probably mine and Carly's childhood, I, I guarantee you my parents could have written down as major life events some form of war or another uh, that the United States was in. The sad reality of the situation is that our country uh, has been at war for the entirety of my lifespan. Uh, there has not been a day that I have been alive on this earth that the United States has not been at war with somebody. And as a result of that ever-ongoing war machine, uh, our country dedicates a large portion of our budget to warfare, uh, to defense and to offense, to arming our armed forces. Uh, what you might not be aware of is the vast amount of those funds that go to what we might call enemy reconnaissance. A large portion of our funds and really a large way that we exercise the warfare that we do that makes the United States military so successful in most of their military endeavors is not just what we do when boots get on the ground, but what we do months and years and decades prior to ever sending troops over. Uh, between our drones and our satellites and our planes that can fly at absurd altitudes and never be detected. Uh, the U.S. beats everyone else when it comes to enemy reconnaissance. And this is important. And this is integral to a successful military uh, campaign. Uh, that we would know where our enemy uh, stores its arms and munitions or maybe nuclear warheads that we would know where their bunkers are and where their stations are, and also be able to determine and decipher uh, what's a civilian position versus an enemy position. These are important, necessary components of a successful battle campaign of any military. And so it seems that Jude has given the church a little bit of exactly that this evening in Jude 1, 5 through 16. Here we have uh, what I really think we could look at as a form of enemy reconnaissance. Jude, earlier in verses 3 through 4, where we were the last time we met together and uh, looked at Jude, uh, helped us to observe some of the enemy's attack plan, what their strategies were. Uh, but here Jude really expands on it. In verses 3 through 4, where we were last time, Jude warned us of the enemies of the false teachers. 
And now in verses 5 through 16, he shows us how to spot them. He gives us enemy reconnaissance, telling us that with a big blinking sign, hey, here is what you look out for. Here's how to spot them in your midst. Here's the signs. Here's, here's how you tell. And so he shows us this evening uh, two things. And we'll have two points that we consider this evening as we uh, look at this text. He shows us uh, the enemy's character, and he shows us the enemy's condemnation. The enemy's character and the enemy's condemnation. We'll see first as we consider the enemy's character. We'll note two things here. That they defile the flesh and that they despise authority. They defile the flesh and they despise authority. Look with me at your Bibles at Jude chapter 1 verse 8. I guess we don't really have to say chapter 1. I always go back and forth on that. Is it Jude 1, 8, or is it just Jude verse 8? The first sounds better to me. Jude verse 8. Jude refers to them as these people. And that's really the phrase that you'll, you'll find repeated over and over again. These people. These people. Well, who are these people, Jude? Well, they're false teachers. It was the whole reason and occasion for Jude pinning this letter. Remember, uh, in the previous verses that we looked at, this was not the letter that Jude originally wanted or intended to write. Right? It seems that Jude wanted to write a letter more akin to Ephesians, a, a letter uh, concerning doctrine and theology and things that we all agree on. But he was prevented from doing so. And so he writes here in verse 8 of these people, and he says that they defile the flesh and that they despise authority. They defile the flesh and they despise authority. Jude here gives us some enemy reconnaissance, and he does so by giving us multiple metaphors and illustrations. In fact, in fact, I would think that you would be hard-pressed to find any other passage in God's Word, Old or New Testament, where you find this many metaphors and illustrations cram-packed into this small of a space. All in all, there are 14 metaphors and illustrations in our passage today in verses 5 through 16. And that's 14 metaphors and illustrations in only 12 verses. It's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to unpack. Uh, in, in fact, I was, I was tempted to give us a 14-point sermon, but figured you would look at the bulletin and see that and just not come. Uh, and so we'll, we'll, we'll do it in two, and, and we'll stick to our time, but just I, I have to feel the need to share that whatever amount that we're able to cover this evening... You could spend weeks or months, you could dedicate a semester at a seminary in, in unpacking everything that Jude offers here. And so Jude summarized the point of all of these metaphors, all of these illustrations, and we will take the time to, to briefly, unfortunately, but briefly go through and look at each of them. But he summarizes the point of all of them in a couple of verses. Thank you, Jude. That's a good preacher. He summarizes all of it in two verses, verse 8 and verse 16. In verse 8, Jude writes that these people rely on their own dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then, roughly eight verses later, in verse 16, he writes that these are grumblers, malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And those are his summary statements, if you will. Uh, but in each of those summary statements... And throughout all 14 of these metaphors and illustrations, we will find two features present in every single one of them of false teachers. They defile the flesh and they despise authority. They defile the flesh and they despise 
authority. If you remember last time as we looked at Jude verses 3 through 4, we, we assessed their two-pronged attack plan. Remember that it was both moral and theological. And, and this kind of gets us in the same uh, vein of thought. Uh, they defile the flesh. They are moral failures. Uh, they, they have outward sins which accompany what's going in on the inside. These are the fruits of the fallen, as you will. Uh, it gives us signs. It gives us things able to see and identify them. They defile the flesh. They, they lack any proper moral ground with which to stand on. And they despise authority. They despise authority. Uh, chiefly here, Jude's pointing out biblical authority, God's authority. Although I think if the time would have allotted, we could spend some time addressing the fact that with these false teachers, I think you could find as a vein of thought throughout scriptures that when men despise God's authority, you'll find them despising, despising God's given authority to others in the world. And so let's look at these metaphors and illustrations here considering their character in the first point. And so in verse 5, in verse 5, Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Destroyed those who did not believe. And before we even get into the metaphor, I, I think it's interesting Jude says that he wants to remind them, though they once fully knew it. Well, Jude, why are you saying it if they already know it? Why the reminder if they already know it? And here Matthew Henry, I think, made a, a very good point pertaining to, to the preaching ministry in general. That, that preaching, oftentimes we come and we, we hear a sermon or we hear a lecture, and what we come desiring is to learn some new information. And I think as a culture, I know particularly with my generation as millennials and Gen Z after us, uh, we are generations that, that desire constant information, information, information. As we scroll Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, right, we're just inundated by information, whether good or bad. But we don't need to come to preaching with that mindset. Preaching, Matthew Henry says, is not designed to teach us something new in every sermon, somewhat that we knew not, nothing of before, but to put us in remembrance, to call to mind things forgotten, to affect our passions, and to engage and fix our resolutions that our lives may be answerable to our faith. Basically, Matthew Henry is saying the point of every sermon is not to give you new information. Surely as you grow in Christ and you've been in the faith longer and longer, you will find it to be the case that there's less and less new information for you. This is good. It's a sign you're growing. And so Jude wants to remind them of something that they already knew. That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so in our very first illustration here, Jude takes us back to the people of Israel and to the Exodus. And he focuses not, not on the highlights, as it were, of the Exodus story. And there, there are plenty of highlights, right? When we, when we think of the Exodus and we think of how we, we usually teach it, usually I'm thinking like to children or in a VBS, where you focus on God's redeeming power, how he saved them, the, the mighty miracles of the parting of the Red Sea. But that's not really what Jude focuses on here. Jude focuses on the subsequent judgment of those who rejected God's lordship in their lives, despite all the miracles that God did to show them. If you were to keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, in verses 1 through 10 of that chapter, we find Paul reflecting on very much so the same story here. Paul writes to the church at Corinth regarding the same topic, and I think Paul there had the same point as Jude. He writes there in verses 1 through 10 that the Israelites... They were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, 
And they were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. They all ate this, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now that's interesting. Hold up, Paul. The, in Old Testament? That can't be right. The, the rock the Israelites drank from was, was Jesus Christ? The rock was Christ. And as Jude says here in Jude, Jesus is the one who saved Israel out of the land of Egypt. It's worth noting, and it's something that I don't think we should assume that everyone in God's church is on the same page on, that Jesus was not created 2,000 years ago. I think I've shared the, the story with you before of uh, a church where I served as, as the youth pastor at uh, almost a decade ago now, uh, when we were doing our, our Bible study, um, we had been going through the doctrine of, of the Trinity. And in the lessons on the Son, we, we talked about the, the hypostatic union, right? Where, where God uh, unites to human flesh and he is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, not created, eternal. And I saw this kind of light bulb moment click in, in, in one of the girls that were there at the study and uh, if, you've, if you've ever taught a study, maybe you've seen this face where someone gets on something and they don't hear anything else you say, right? They're, they're waiting to ask that question. And sure enough, she made a beeline up to me right after the lesson and was blown away. She had grown up in Protestant churches her entire life. Her father was a pastor. And yet at 17 years old, this was the first time, this was new information for her, that Jesus was not created 2,000 years ago. That, that was new information for her. So we don't need to take it for granted. Jesus was not created 2,000 years ago. That's when he became incarnate. That's when he took on human flesh. But that was not his creation nor his beginning. He had no creation nor beginning. Jesus Christ is the eternal, divine, almighty creator God. He is the second person of the everlasting Trinity. Co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. And we read here in Jude that it is that Jesus Christ who saved the people of Israel out of Egypt. Christ was the rock. Christ was their Savior and Redeemer. And sadly, it's the case that many today, many today erroneously think that Jesus didn't come around until the New Testament. Even if they know that he wasn't created 2,000 years ago, they think that Jesus, Jesus isn't really part of the story, right, until you get to Matthew. But Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is on every page of the Scriptures. He is just as much the creator, redeemer, and savior of the saints of the Old Testament as he was the saints of the New Testament and as he is of the saints today. But what is Jude's main point here? What is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10? Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 5, writes that nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The story of the Israelites and of the Exodus is, is amazing and it's encouraging in, in many respects. But maybe the most wild thing about the story of the Exodus and of the people of Israel in the wilderness is that after all that God did for them and showed them and, and conducted in their midst, that so many still did not believe. So many did still not believe. They still rejected his authority in their lives. Matthew Henry writes of them that they had miracles in abundance. Miracles were their daily bread. Yet even they perished in unbelief. How heartbreaking. 
that the Israelites witnessed the plagues. They saw and followed the fire by night and the cloud by day. And yet many, many died in the wilderness in unbelief and never reached the promised land. They walked through the parted sea, and yet they died, many of them, in unbelief. In verse 6, moving on to the next illustration, Jude says, speaking of the angels, that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, they left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Here Jude speaks of the fallen rebellious angels. He says that they didn't stay in their position of authority that God gave them. That they, they left their proper dwelling. Instead of submitting to God's order and station for them, they rebelled and they rejected and they stepped out of line. Again, do you see the common thread here? Do you see the common thread here? Rejection of authority. Rejection of of authority. They despise God-given authority. As the angels did, so now the false teachers do. In verse 7, moving on to the next illustration, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And Here Jude draws our attention to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Specifically, he draws our minds to their destruction as a result of their debauchery and homosexuality and perversion and sexual immorality. And Jude here draws some comparison, which has been the source of a lot of debate over the last 2,000 years of church history, between the fallen angels and the wicked inhabitants of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He uses a phrase which connects these two illustrations, just as. And there has been whole books written on what this comparison entails. We, we don't have the time for that this evening. Uh, I'll just offer to you a couple of the options and then where I land and I think where most of Christ's church and especially the Reformed Protestant churches historically uh, landed. Uh, some would say that the comparison that Jude is drawing between the fallen angels and Sodom and Gomorrah is the specific type of sin. They would say that Jude is drawing on apocryphal texts like the book of Enoch, drawing upon interpretations of Genesis chapter 6 about the sons of God coming and taking as their mates, the, the daughters of, of, of men. And then we read of the Nephilim and all that's involved. And so many would, would make the suggestion here that uh, what what Jude is saying is that the sins of the fallen angels were the same as the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning sexual perversion. That Jude is talking about angels, angelic beings, having sexual relationships with, with human women. Some would suggest that. I, I, would, I would disagree. I would disagree for a few different reasons. The one, and this is the one in particular that Matthew Henry, Calvin, and just about every other reformer and Protestant that I could find on the text, their, their main argument against this is simply that we read repeatedly in the scriptures, it seems, that angels are not like us. Angels don't have sex or gender, right? When Jesus was asked about marriage in heaven, what, what did Jesus use as an example? That, that in heaven we'll be like the angels, neither given nor taken in marriage. 
And so I don't, I don't think this is the case. I don't think Jude is saying here that fallen angels are in the same sins of the Sodomites, sexual immorality and fornication. But what I do think Jude is saying here is that just as the fallen angels exchange the proper worship of God and acknowledgement of His authority for the worship of themselves, so also the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah did in their perversion, their homosexuality, and their fornication. That both sets of sins were accompanied by flagrant pride and rebellion to God. It was with flagrant pride and rebellion to God that both fallen angels and the Sodomites stepped out of their proper God-given places and functions. Again, notice the defiling of the flesh and the despising of authority. It is, as it were, it's not very popular to address in this day and age. We're common, it's common to hear in regards to homosexuality that it's just a sin like every other sin. I would offer to you that that is neither biblical nor how the church has historically understood that at all. While all sexual sins are sins, homosexuality is a perversion directly of God's created order. It is a perversion directly of God's created order. And so here we read in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah that they pursued unnatural desires. They pursued unnatural desires. And this is a rejection of authority. It is a looking at the testimony of not just special revelation, but the testimony of natural revelation. The obvious things that God has taught us that we can see with our own eyes. That man is made for woman and woman for man. To look at that and to reject it is to reject God's authority. This was the sin of the Sodomites as it was the sin of the fallen angels. They stepped out of their God-given places. Continuing on to the next illustration, Jude writes in verses 9 through 10. That when the archangel Michael contending with the devil about the body of Moses. And immediately you go, what? Where? Where, where did that happen? <laughs> where did Michael, the angel, fight with the devil over the body of Moses? What is going on? I don't remember reading that in Deuteronomy. It says, but he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said the Lord rebuke you. Now it does seem here that maybe Jude is pulling from some extra biblical apocryphal works. Uh, he blatantly does. I don't, there's Actually, I don't think any way to argue that he directly quotes from the book of Enoch in verse 14. And throughout his entire book, he, he seems to be pulling from some common vein of thought, if not directly intentionally quoting some of these apocryphal works, at least referencing them. And it does seem here that maybe Jude is pulling from the extra-biblical work entitled The Assumption of Moses. Uh, that work entitled The Assumption of Moses, it expands upon the biblical narrative of Moses that we find in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 6. And there in the assumption of Moses, we, we find a story of how the archangel Michael and the devil fought over possession of the now deceased body of Moses. Now, is Jude quoting from this work? Is he not? I don't know. And I really don't think it matters, to be, to be completely honest, because I don't think it's the point that Jude is making. And I'll just note now, and I'll probably repeat it again when we get to verse 14, that just because Jude might be quoting... Or, or citing or being in agreement with, with a phrase here or there from this work or that, does not mean the entire work is inspired. We find Paul at the Areopagus quoting Greek philosophers. I don't think anyone would take that as a statement that Paul agreed with everything that philosopher said. That neither should it here. 
And so whether he's quoting from the not, I think it's irrelevant to the point. What is Jude's point here? It's Michael's humility. Michael's humility in the conflict is the point. It stands in stark contrast to the false teacher's pride, who, as Jude writes, blaspheme all that they do not understand. It's worth noting, Jude thinks, that when fighting with the devil, all the archangel Michael did was appeal to God's authority. Whereas false teachers continually and repeatedly only appeal to their own supposedly claimed authority. Michael, in the fight, did not claim authority for himself, but humbly trusted in God's. Again, we find the theme repeated. False teachers despise true, God-given, biblical authority. And so we move on to the next illustration in verse 11. Jude says that false teachers have walked in the way of Cain. Now these next few we will move through a little bit quicker. I think they're relatively straightforward. They walked in the way of Cain. Jude is saying that false teachers are like Cain. Cain, the son of an Adam and Eve who, who murdered his brother Abel in Genesis 4, is, is the archetypal sinner. He, he is, as so many would call him, the father of murder. And as such, by his actions, has instructed by his ways many others who came after in sin. And Jude is making a connection here. Likewise, Jude is saying, likewise, similarly to Cain, false teachers will inevitably turn on those that they call their brothers. Likewise to Cain, they will instruct others not in righteousness, but in wickedness and lead them to ruin. Jude also writes in verse 11 of the false teachers that they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. False teachers are like Cain, and Jude says they are like Balaam. Balaam, of course, in Numbers 22 through 24, is the famous prophet for hire. He's the snake oil salesman, as it were. And Jude says false teachers today follow in their father Balaam's footsteps. False teachers like Balaam are willing to abuse their gifts and abuse the preaching of God's word for personal gain, even at the expense of Christ's church. They're snake oil salesmen who, who line their pockets and fill their bank accounts to the detriment and to the expense of Christ's church. And Jude gives us a third illustration in verse 11, writing that they perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude now says that false teachers are like Cain, they're like Balaam, and they're like Korah. If you remember Korah in Numbers chapter 16, 16 he, he led a rebellion against Moses' leadership. He decided he had enough of it. Moses hadn't gotten done what he wanted done, so maybe he needed to be the big man in charge. Jude says here false teachers today are following exactly in the footsteps of Korah. Korah, when he led the rebellion against Moses' leadership, was ultimately leading a rebellion against God's authority and God's leadership. False teachers like Korah, then Jude is making the point, think that they know better than the word of God and that they know better than the servants of God. In verse 12, Jude gives us yet another illustration that these are, and this is probably the most confusing phrase, that these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. The hidden reefs one may be not so complicated. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. What, what is a love feast? I'll just offer you how the church historically has interpreted this to be the Lord's table. Um, almost every writer I could find on this were pretty much across the board in agreement um, that this referred to the Lord's table, to communion, to the Lord's supper practice in churches, that this was another way to phrase it and to word it. 
And so what is Jude saying here? I think the point here is the hidden reef part, and then we'll make the connection with the Lord's table in a second. What's the danger of a hidden reef? Well, I was unaware of the danger of a hidden reef until I moved to Hawaii. Um, I lived in Hawaii for about four or five months back in 2013, serving a church plant there, and, and, and surfed, or I should probably say attempted to surf uh, for, for the majority of the time that I was there, we went to the beach probably just about every single day, and I tried my hardest every day to surf. I don't know if I ever uh, figured it out. Uh, but one thing I learned the hard way about a month into these surfing practices or, or attempts, really, uh, was the danger that hidden reefs post. One day while trying my hand at, at surfing, we, we'd gotten probably three-quarters of a mile to a mile out from shore, which is feels a lot further than it is. Uh, it doesn't look as far when you're on the beach. It does when you're out there. Um, and was out there, and, and a perfect wave came up, and the guys that were with me that, that were born and raised in Hawaii, they took it first and made it look like no problem. And so I tried to catch the, the tail end of it, and probably more successfully than any other wave I caught in Hawaii, I, I rode it for what felt like a glorious eternity. Uh, was ecstatic, and right at the height of my excitement, uh, the wave slammed me under. And one of the dangers that this poses is when the, the, the wave slams you under, you think, well, it's just going to slam me under, and then the wave dissipates. No, when it slams you under the water, it holds you under the water, and you, you spin with the water, and good luck holding your breath. Well, well, that had happened a few times maybe before. This was a new occurrence in that when the wave slammed me under, it did not slam me just into water. Uh, that when large enough waves come, it pulls the water out from in front of it, and so when it slams you, it hits you on Maybe sand, or in this case, a hidden reef. And that wave slammed me into a, into a bed of coral and rock, and it was rough. It was rough. Uh, I came out of that, needless to say, banged up, bloody, bruised, uh, debating whether or not I needed stitches, and I don't think I surfed again for probably two or three more weeks. Well, Jude here says that false teachers are like those hidden reefs. These false teachers may be present and partaking of the bread and the cup, meaning they might have snuck their ways into the churches. They may have confused the body into thinking that they're part of the fellowship, that they're one of them, but they are dangerous rocky reefs in what would otherwise appear to be the calm waters of the church. Hidden reefs, brothers and sisters, can sink large ships and can kill surfers. And likewise, Jude warns us that false teachers are dangerous and deadly. Continuing in verse 12, he says that they are shepherds feeding themselves. Well, this one is straightforward enough, I think. Shepherds should not feed themselves but the sheep. But these shepherds are only feeding themselves. These false teachers are getting fat and plump at the sheep's detriment and expense. He writes that these false teachers are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Both of these metaphors, I think, mean pretty much the same thing. They make promises that they don't keep. They promise a lot, and, and they don't back those promises. And clouds should bring rain, which grow the crops and the grass and the trees. But waterless clouds promise, yet fail to deliver. Likewise, fruitless trees are the same deal. They promise fruit, yet they give you none. I've had a peach tree on my property for all three years that I've lived here. And every year, it flowers and it blooms and the little fruit sprout up. And it has not mattered whether I don't spray anything or spray something. I've tried different sprays, different amounts of sprays, watering it, not watering it, putting this, putting that. Three years in a row, we've not gotten a single peach from it. 
And I'm about to the point where I just want to cut it down and be done with it. Well, God feels the same about fruitless trees. And Jude says of these false teachers that they're waterless clouds, they're, they're fruitless trees. They promise life and fullness and happiness, health, wealth, and prosperity, yet they only deliver death and damnation. In verse 13, Jude says that they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Maybe you've been so lucky as to only visit and vacationed at pretty beaches. But if you've ever been down to the Mississippi Gulf Coast, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about when I say that a few years back when Carly and I moved to Gulfport, we were so excited that we were now going to live at the beach, right? Because my whole life, the beach was something we had to drive six, seven hours to go do beach vacations. I remember having a conversation with Carly after we accepted that call of how awesome, we don't even have to travel for vacation anymore, Carly, because we've got the beach in our backyard. Why would we pay money and waste time and mileage when we can just go to the beach right here in Gulfport? Well, we found out on our very first visit uh, to the beach in Gulfport why that was not going to be the case. We were pretty quickly disappointed when we visited the beach before we even got to the water when the smell hit us. All along the shore was debris and garbage and litter and broken glass and dead and rotting fish. The waters were, look, I grew up in Grenada swimming in a lake. And look, that lake was murky. If Grenada Lake, if the water's up to my chest, I can't see my belly button. But it wasn't filthy like this was filthy. You see all the nastiness and gunk that comes down, what, a thousand miles of Mississippi River. It dumps out into the Gulf. And instead of going out like you would expect, those islands keep it all in and it just gets stirred and the nastiness grows and grows and grows. What we saw as we walked along the shoreline every time we went to the beach was what should have been pretty waves crashing against the shore like you expect. All that we saw as the waves crashed was dead fish and garbage and debris getting piled up in the foam of the ocean there on the beach. The waves just pushed up all their nastiness Jude says here, false teachers are the same. They cast up the foam of their own shame. They spew and churn up, not beauty and delight and glory, but their own shameful actions and filth. And finally, we come to the last illustration in verse 13, that Jude says that they are wandering stars. Well, what does this mean? There's two different understandings of this. I don't think it has to be an either or. I think it works out perfectly to be both. I think on the one hand, he's making a comparison to a shooting star. Jude then is saying that false teachers are short-lived, just like the light of a shooting star. You see it for a moment, but if you blink, it's gone. False teachers are the same. They will have no lasting legacy on God's earth and in his creation. And I think also, I think also Jude is using, as we reflect on all these ocean illustrations that he's given upon the usefulness of stars when it comes to navigation... And Jude is saying, Jude is saying that they're wandering stars. Well, what good would a wandering star be to a navigator? A navigator out on the ocean, out on the sea, needs stars that don't move to plot his path and to get to safety. But if they're a wandering star and others are seeking to navigate based on them, they're going to stay lost. And Jude says false teachers are the same. And so this then, we see their character. And very quickly, we consider just looking back at the same verses at their condemnation. If we think back again to verse 5, if we think back again to verse 5 where, Paul, where, where Jude sorry, uh, uses the example of Jesus saving the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. 
but afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I think the takeaway is simple for us, brothers and sisters. May it not be true of us. May it not be true of us. In 1 Corinthians 10, again in Paul's passage, he writes that these things took place as examples for us so that we may not do the evil as they did. And so church, brothers and sisters, may we pray and strive to not repeat the sins and presumptions of Israel. If God did not spare them, why would he spare us? R.C. Sproul wrote, reflecting on this passage, that just as judgment fell on the apostate Israelites, so it will fall as well on the apostate church members. And what's the point here? The point is that we should not presume upon our privileges. Israel was given every miracle and blessing possible. They were given the prophets, and they were given God's word, and they presumed that those privileges meant they were safe from God's judgment. And they were wrong. May we not do the same. Don't presume, as false Christians and false teachers do, that the privilege of having God's word and his sacraments and his church will keep you safe from his judgments. They don't. In actuality, we find throughout God's word that these privileges will give you a higher level of accountability. Do not presume that because God simply hasn't struck you down or publicly shamed you yet, that he must simply be okay with your sins. He is not. Paul warned in Romans 2.4 to not presume upon his riches and kindness and forbearance and patience. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We see their condemnation as we reflect again at verse 6. There with the illustration of the fallen angels. Again, we should consider and apply to ourselves that if God did not spare angels as high and mighty as they are, they're angels for crying out loud. If He did not spare them, why would He spare us who rebel and despise His authority in our lives? Matthew Henry notes here that those who would not be servants to their Maker and His will in their first state will be made captives to His justice in their final state. And to put it this way, you have a choice, brother or sister, submit to God's authority now, or you will be forced to submit to it in the end. It happened to the apostate angels, and it will happen to the apostate Christians and false teachers. Consider the condemnation as we look back again at the illustration of verse 7. And again, the takeaway, I think, is much the same. As God did to the Sodomites and the fallen angels, so He will do to apostates and false teachers. We should learn then from the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Brothers and sisters, it should be a warning for us in this day and age that is not all that different than the day and age of the Sodomites. That if you allow the fires of lust to consume you in this life, then you should trust that the fires of hell will consume you in the next Consider the condemnation in the illustration of verse 11. They perished. Those who rebelled against God's authority and His servant's authority, they perished in fire. Consider verse 13. The condemnation there of the false teachers like the wandering stars. That the blackness of darkness forever is reserved for them. Consider verses 14 through 15 as we close. Jude writes that it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes, 
with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken. Do you notice the word repeated over and over? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. I think Jude makes his point clear. How does God feel about ungodliness? He has no place for it. Whether he quotes the apocryphal work of First Enoch or not is beside the point. The point he's making is repeated from Genesis to Revelation. That there will be a day in which the Son of Man returns. And it will be a joyous occasion for his people. For his people who have been saved by faith alone will not have walked in faith alone. That faith will have been accompanied by good works and righteous living and growth, and display, and production of fruits. And when He returns in glory, His people to whom that is the case will rejoice and will celebrate. But that's only part of the story, brothers and sisters. That for many, the return of King Jesus will not be a joyous occasion, but it will be a terrifying one. This picture that our culture has drawn up of the hippie, gentle, flower-child Jesus that is always kind and is always patient and will never hurt a fly, is not the biblical picture of King Jesus. That when you read the story and see the picture painted in Revelation, His white robe is drenched in red from the blood of His enemies. And so Jude gives us here as His church, brothers and sisters, some enemy reconnaissance. He shows us their false teachers and apostates' character. And he assures us of their condemnation, the point being for his faithful rejoice. Though when we turn on the TV or the radio today, it might seem like the enemy is winning. This will not be how it plays out in the end. They have already been condemned. They have already lost. And so rejoice, O church, for if Christ is victorious, and he is, so are you. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this Christian Sabbath, this Lord's Day. And Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the encouragements that we find in it. We thank You for the passages which build us up and motivate us and encourage us. But Father, we also thank You for the passages which warn us, which cause us to pause, which cause us to reflect, which cause us appropriate questioning and caution. Father, all of Your Word is useful. Father, we pray now as we reflect upon Your Word which we've heard preached, Lord, that You would help us. Help us to not forget it. Help us to be obedient in it. And help us to share it with another. Father, we pray this in Christ's name and for His kingdom and glory. Amen.